Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Theology of the body. It's the study of God as revealed through our bodies. It's how the story is revealed through our bodies. The thesis statement again, the body, in fact, and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, right? The visible makes the invisible tangible, right? That the body transfers into the visible realm of creation the mystery that's been hidden in God from all time and makes it tangible and present, right? So God himself is an eternal exchange of life and love, Trinity. He stamped that image of himself into our very bodies as male and female in the call of the two to become one flesh, right? So as a couple, we are, St. John Paul II, if he, if he did have, this, is, this sounds scandalous to say, if he did have anything major to contribute to the tradition, which he obviously did, but one of the great contributions that he made was saying that man becomes the image of God not so much in the moment of solitude, meaning not so much simply when Adam's there alone. He said we become the image of God in the moment of communion, when Eve shows up. So we are imago Dei, image of God, but we're most particularly imago Trinitatis. We're in the image of the Trinity, right? Our masculinity and femininity, the complementarity, the, two, the, the call of the two to become one flesh, how that reveals the life-giving love of who God is, but that also further reveals the kind of relationship that God wants to have with humanity, which is not simply one of close friendship, right? Our Protestant brothers and sisters, they say all the time, having a personal relationship with the Lord. Like, that's good, but that's not the full extent of it. Like, that's not the goodness of the good news of the gospel. The crazy proposal, the crazy proposal at the heart of the gospel is that there is a proposal at the heart of the gospel that God approaches every human soul and says, will you spend eternity with me? Will you, you open yourself to unite your nature to my nature for all eternity? Will you let me in? That the least inadequate image that God has for explaining how he wants to relate to us is that of human spousal love. Human spousal love. So theology of the body, it's so much more than just a fifth grade chastity talk. Yes or yes? Good. It's so much more than a fifth grade chastity talk. It is revealing all the mysteries. It's revealing all the mysteries that God is speaking to us, we would say, in sign language. And this is part of what Jen was getting at in her talk, that the most eloquent, powerful sign that God uses, first he uses the sign language of creation, but then he's using most powerfully the sign language of our maleness and femaleness. So we've looked at... Um, what is Theology of the Body? Why it matters? That was my talk. We've looked at original and historical man, um, where we come from and where we are now, and that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. You've been through a lot already. You've been through a lot already. And Hawaiian sandwiches in your bellies. I mean, what a day. What a day, right? Come on. But what I get to talk about now, uh, I get to come in and finish the, the third part of that triptych, right? So we have original man, historical man, I get to talk about eschatological man. I get to talk about our destiny, which really is, in many ways, it's the, it's the good news of the good news. Like, this is the best news. Like, I secretly feel like I've got the best talk to give to you today. Not like just simply in quality or content, but I think just like the fact that 
Like, this is the gold, people. Like, this is the really good stuff. This is the good stuff. I get to talk about how all of this will draw to a close. I'm talking about our ultimate destiny. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about heaven, which is way better than talking about sin and dysfunction and our disordered desires. Like, this heaven's way better than talking about all that. But, man, do we have some really amazingly pathetic images of heaven that we carry in our minds. We have some really amazing and pathetic images and understandings of heaven that we just kind of pick up and absorb from the culture and from art and things like this. Like, I remember as a, as a little boy flying with my family on vacations and looking out the window, and, like, you look out the window, you see the clouds. You're like, this is heaven? Right? Like, who's thought that, right? Like, I'm the only one. Cool, okay. <laughs> you look out the window, and it's just like, like, there's something about this that is heavenly, right? It's glorious. It's beautiful. But this isn't heaven. And yet, still, so many of us, like, carry this very childish, um, naive view of heaven. We think of it, who's, who's here seen the Pixar movie Inside Out? Okay, awesome Pixar movie. It's really not for kids. Like, of course it's for kids, but it's not for kids. Like, you're a grown-up, like, <laughs> like, losing it. It's so deep. But in, 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 I'll just show you this. This is how we picture heaven. I think a lot of us. We think of it as Cloud Town. Forget it, kid. It's Cloud Town. This, I, I, I know this might seem childish, but like this is in some ways like this very kind of naive image of heaven that like heaven's the great big glorious room where God is and we all get our, our, our cloud house and our cloud mailbox and like, like God walks by on the sidewalk. You're like, oh, there's God, right? Like he's bigger than I thought he was, right? That's not heaven. Listen to this from Peter Kraft. No one longs for fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs, but everyone longs for heaven. No one longs for any of the heavens that we have ever imagined, but everyone longs for something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, something that has not entered into the imagination of man, something God has prepared for those who love him. No one longs for any of the heavens that we've ever imagined. But we all long for heaven. Like, what is this hope that we have? What, what is this destiny? What is this thing? What is, what is this heaven thing that we're all, like, aiming towards? This eternal life thing. That's what we're looking at this afternoon. And I want to start with this. I want to start with this guy. This is my grandpa. This is my dad's dad. Dick Schultz. He died uh, January 19th, 2020. He got out of here right before COVID hit. He was a genius. <laughs> he was an amazing man, absolutely amazing man. Lived through the Great Depression. He served in the Navy, was a high school teacher, tennis coach, student government body, you know, advisor, all those things. But I didn't know him as any of those things. I knew him as Bop. He was my bop. My oldest cousin, Brad, it's the oldest cousin who gets to decide what grandpa's, grandma and grandpa's names are. 
He couldn't say grandpa, so he's called him Bapa. So he was Bop to all of us. He was an unbelievable man. And I miss him terribly. He, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in uh, was October of uh, 2019. And he had been losing weight for a while. And my dad finally got him to the doctor. And he saw, I mean, that this is what was going on. And it was, it was bad and it was aggressive. And there was, just, there was nothing we were going to do about it. There was nothing he wanted to do about it. He lived uh, at home by himself for about a month or so, a month and a half. Um, and then it was right around Thanksgiving that uh, he just was not ready. He was done living by himself, and he moved into my parents' house in Hudson. And that's where he was until the very end. And it was, it was an unbelievable gift to be with him through those final weeks of his life um, he was in the first floor guest bedroom of my parents' house, and uh, the few days leading up to when, before he died, I had the opportunity to basically spend those days consecutively there at home with my dad and my mom and my aunt, um, my Aunt Pam. And uh, he, he wasn't connected to any machines. I mean, he had a you know, nasal cannula for oxygen, and, but I gave him the sacraments and would pray over him and, and just to, to lie in the bed next to him as you know that he was getting ready to go home. And... Um, one of the most amazing things you get to do as a priest is you get to be so close to death and dying. It's an unbelievable privilege. And one of the prayers that you get to pray as a priest, like the reason why you want a priest at your bedside is so that the priest can pray this prayer over you called the apostolic pardon. Uh, it's, it's very short, and it basically it says, by invoking the authority given to you from the apostolic see, meaning the highest authority that the church has, I remit, I forgive you of all temporal punishment due to sin. And essentially, it's just wiping the soul clean of everything and saying, when the Lord calls you home, you're going straight home. It's the do not pass go, do not collect $200, you're going straight up. And I had prayed that prayer over him a few times, <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> so I knew where he was going. I knew that he was ready. He told us that he was ready. Um... I'd asked him before, before he, he was no longer verbal, I asked him if he was scared. And he said, um, he said a little bit. He said a little bit. And then he said this to me. He said, when I was a little boy and I would get scared, he said, I would ask my mom, or my mom would tell me, Dick, just say, Jesus, take me by the hand. And so he told me, he's like, I've just been saying that over and over and over and over again. Jesus, take me by the hand. And he said, death is like a turnstile. Like we all, we all take our turn. We will all take our turn and go through that gate. Like I knew where he was going. I knew that he was ready. He lived an incredibly beautiful life. And I, I didn't want him to die. I didn't want him to be gone. It'll be, it was four years this past January. And as a priest, I mean, I've said, I, I've lost track of how many funerals I've said. And the funny thing about, like, we, we don't know how to do death, partly because we, we don't really have the theology of the body in our minds and hearts yet as a church, and we certainly don't have a proper view of heaven yet in our minds and hearts. So we say stupid things to each other around death. We say things like, oh, they're in a better place. Or God needed another angel, you know. Well, screw that. I wanted my grandpa. 
Like, God's God, he'll be fine. Like, I don't want him dead. Like, if you think about all the loved ones that you've ever buried, we don't want them dead. Nor do we want them to keep extending the life that he had. Like, I wouldn't, it's not like I necessarily wanted him to keep living the way he was living either. Like, I wanted him, I want him fully alive. Like, we all know that everything and everyone will die. And yet, why do we want, why do we want life and love to last forever? Are we crazy? Or is there something deep in our hearts that knows that we were made for a love and for a life that doesn't end? Is it possibly true that our hearts in this rebellion are being prophetic and telling us, no, you're actually made for a world where life and love don't end? Jen showed us in her presentation a bunch of those pictures of the beauty of creation. Beauty has this way of bypassing our minds and just getting deep in. Beauty, Pope Benedict says, beauty pierces us. It's like a dart. It causes us to ache and to, like, that's why I was, I was moaning, right? Like, you see something beautiful, it just takes your breath away. This is, this is why I, I both love and I hate spring, I love and I hate spring. You ask the question, like, what's your favorite flower? I, I, in my head, I'm thinking all of them and none of them. I love and hate flowers. Like, at, at my parish, for the people who decorate uh, Sacred Heart are unbelievably talented. Like, the decorations for Christmas, Christmas and Easter are just off the chain. So stunningly beautiful. I both love, I love them like the decorations, the flowers, and I also, like, I, I hate them. <laughs> because the, the poinsettias that surround the altar that just bring such beauty to the sanctuary, it's unbelievable. But, like, what my heart knows is that give it two weeks. And what are the poinsettias going to be doing? Dying, wilting. Like the Easter lilies, gorgeous. The church is erupting in beauty, all of it, just trumpeting out the glory of the resurrection. Life, Right? Give it two weeks, even shorter Easter lilies shriveling and dying, and like the flower petals fall on the ground. I love and I hate spring. Like, like come, like we, in Northeast Ohio, we need, to, we need to be reminded that this is coming, okay? Like, <laughs> this is coming, right? Every year, like the trees, it, it, it turns magical. Like, how can it be that these trees that once looked so dead are now like, this? Like, and it's stunning, and the fragrance is stunning, and yet it's going almost as soon as it comes. And if I'm honest about my heart, what I see in there is I don't want beauty to go away. I, I want beauty. I want a beauty that stays, that's secure. I want love that stays and that is secure. I want life that stays. That's, I, I don't want a little bit of friendship. I want the fullness of friendship. I don't want a little bit of tasty food. I want all of the... Chris Cavoli, he wants all the tasty food. Right, Chris? It's true. You want all of it. I don't want just a little bit of it. I want all of it. Like the Lord, he gives us these moments throughout our life, these experiences where our hearts are burning within us. 
Like there's these moments where like life is happening and then all of a sudden like life is happening. Like you're going along, all of a sudden something bubbles up where you're like, whoa, whoa, like, whoa, freeze, freeze. You're, like, you're looking for like the remote control of life. And you're trying to say, I want to freeze this moment. I want to bottle this moment up. This is why, as Jen was saying, like this is why we take pictures of things. I'm convinced of this. This is why we take pictures of these beautiful scenes and beautiful sunrises and beautiful fields and beautiful flowers. Why? Because there's this desire. I wish I could freeze this. I mean, in every single person who's ever taken any picture of any sunrise or sunset, what do you always say when you show the picture to somebody? It doesn't do it justice. It, doesn't, it didn't actually look anything like this. But look at this anyway. Hang on, look at this one, right? In the fall, one of my absolute favorite things in the fall is driving when it's a cooler fall night, but you can still have the windows open in your car, right? And you're driving at night, and all of a sudden, in between the trees, there's a breeze that comes in, and all of a sudden, you just get hit with the smell of bonfire from somewhere. And you're just like, oh, what is that? Right? I, I, I know there was a, uh, there was a candle store um, I forget, where, uh, I forget where it was. Jen, where was the candle? Where's Jen? She's not in here. She used to work at a candle store. Where, what was the candle store she worked at? The Candle Lab. The Candle Lab. The Candle Lab sold bonfire-scented candles. I bought five of them. <laughs> to try and have that, to like try and recreate that. But you know what? <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't do it justice. The Lord, he gives us these moments in our lives. We have these moments in our lives where like these experiences where our hearts suddenly awaken. Just to share, again, like just from the vulnerability of my own heart, I want to share some pictures here. Just moments where like I wish that I could grab the remote control of life and hit pause to freeze it. This is me with one of my, my first goddaughters. This is uh, Rosie Laboda. She's like five months old in this picture. I have this picture on the uh, table in the room where I pray in the morning, right in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Her and Lily, they're, they're in fifth grade now. Not quite that small, right? But these moments that come in that are just so beautiful and so good and so piercing that you just, like, I just, whatever this is, Lord, I want this to last forever. Like what I, I wish there could be like a candle of this that I could just keep it. Like there's life and then there's moments that are like so life, it's so good that you wish you could freeze. Even moments like this, right? <laughs> One of the great gifts of being a celibate is you have such um, just a beautiful invitation into so many people's lives that I get to just share life like this. Like, who doesn't want to freeze these moments? Like, there bubbles up in our heart this thing that says, I, I want this forever. I want this forever. We carry in our hearts a longing for forever. Pope Benedict, he put it this way. He said, man's aching desire for the infinite is like a signature imprinted with fire in his soul and in his body by the creator himself. Like, pause there. 
when, a, when, a, when an artist finishes his masterpiece, he signs it, right? I did this. This is the fruit of my heart. This is the fruit of my mind. This is the fruit of my labors. The Pope is saying that longing for the infinite, that's the signature of God in the soul. That's his way of saying, like, that's his mark upon us. You were made by an infinite God, and you're not crazy for wanting forever. You're not crazy for wanting infinity. The heart's thirst and the body's longing, it cannot be eliminated. What we end up doing, the Pope says it in the, the more expanded version of the quote, what the Pope says that we end up doing often is that we go in search of these false infinities to try and fill our hearts. We're like this cup that's looking for liquid. We can't fill ourselves, but dang it, one way or another, we're going to have something in us. We're looking for the ocean, and we settle for a few drops of rain. That's what we do. What we're talking about here is the deepest, when we talk about heaven, we're talking about the deepest fulfillment of our heart's longing. The deepest fulfillment of our heart's longing. Like, and we can't fathom what it is that we're talking about when we talk about heaven. Again, our minds, our minds are so narrow. Our minds are so like pathetically uncreative thinking about heaven. It's not cloud town. It's not cloud town. St. Francis of Assisi, he tells this, uh, not this. Oh, I, I want to go through this. <laughs> this is really good. This is important. I want to go through this. Pope Benedict, he says this, that to the Christian faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need to come over here so I can read it. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an expression of certainty that the saying that seems to be only a beautiful dream is in fact true. This is from the Song of Songs. The lovers in the Song of Songs are crying out, looking for a love that is stronger than death. Because that's the problem, right? Everything ends. Everything dies. Everything crumbles. Everything fades. Everything comes to an end. And yet, I don't want things to come to an end. In the Song of Songs, they're crying out, is there a love that is as strong as death? In the Old Testament, this sentence comes in the middle of praises of the power of Eros. But this by no means signifies that we can simply push it aside as a lyrical exaggeration. He's saying, we can't just dismiss this as poetry. He says, this is serious, actually. The boundless demands of Eros, its apparent exaggerations and extravagance, do in reality give an expression to a basic problem. Indeed, the basic problem of human existence. Pause. He's about to tell you, look at me, don't read ahead. The Pope is about to tell you what is the basic problem of human existence. Is it poverty? Is it injustice? No. The basic problem of human existence, insofar as they reflect the nature and intrinsic paradox of love. Love demands infinity, indestructibility. Indeed, it is, so to speak, a call for infinity. He's saying, like, our hearts, this longing, this passion, those moments that you want to freeze. It's like, love is demanding. I want 
the fullness of life, the fullness of love, the fullness of flavor, the fullness of friendship, the fullness of good, endless beauty, endless goodness. Love demands it. Love demands it. And yet, but it is also a fact that this cry of love's cannot be satisfied, that it demands infinity but cannot grant it, that it claims eternity. I want eternity. But, can, but in fact is included in the world of death. That's the problem. We're in this world of death, in its loneliness and in its power of destruction. Only from this angle can one understand what resurrection means. It is the greater strength of love in the face of death. What we're talking about is the fact that there is a power that we can be attached to that takes us beyond death that our hearts will not be forever frustrated, that satisfaction is coming. This is what we're talking about. This is, so I was talking about St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi, he had this experience shortly after he had the stigmata where he was asking the Lord, Lord, I want, to ta- I want to taste, I want to experience as much as I possibly can in my body the glory that is awaiting us. In other words, he's saying, I want to, I want to feel a little bit of heaven. I want to know what this is like, what we're headed to. And the Lord's response to St. Francis was, you're, you're, you, can't, you can't handle it. <laughs> you can't handle it. And he's like, no, no, no. Yes, I can. So the Lord says to him, okay, Francis, I will send to you the smallest angel from the lowest choir carrying the smallest violin to play, the, to play one note from the heavenly melody. Again, poetic language, but this is what he said. The angel played one note for Francis, and Francis is in a coma for seven days. I don't know what that means, okay? But whatever it means, it's like, you can't can't possibly fathom, or or Therese of Lisieux. Therese had this mystical experience where she was taken up in some respect, where she got to experience a tiny little thimble of the glory that's coming. And she comes out of this, and she says, I would be willing to suffer all of the martyrdoms of all of the martyrs of the history of church, if I could experience one degree more of the glory that I just experienced. What the heck is the glory that she experienced? If that, if, uh, or St. Paul, where he says, I consider all the suffering of this present age nothing compared to the glory yet to be revealed in us. Like, just... Think of, like, think of the audacity of that claim. Think of just the suffering of your life. From every paper cut to every broken heart, from every moment of your life, in all of the sufferings. Now take that, add that up with the person sitting next to you. Now take that and add it up to all the victims of the Holocaust and the killing fields of Cambodia and the Gulag and every orphan and every child and every person that's ever suffered anything Paul's saying it's, it's actually nothing compared to the glory that's coming, which just begs the question, like, what is the glory that's coming? Can we even, <laughs> we can't wrap our heads around it. We can't. But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about home. That's what heaven is. It's Home. We're all nostalgic. Nostalgia means, of course, it, it means the, the pain associated with the desire to go home. 
But we're not nostalgic for a past that we've experienced before because it wasn't really in those things that we were looking. We're nostalgic for a home that we've never been to. So to get us more in touch with that longing for home, I want us to listen to this song for a moment. I want you to listen to the lyrics. This is Jeremy Riddle. It's a song he wrote called Home. Pay attention to the words. And let's settle in for a second. What stood out? What lyrics? What words? Jake? Glory wafting through the air. Yeah. Someone else. Mm. 
where my heart is aching to go. To my father in a wedding where even death is swallowed, where God himself will make his home. Yeah. Whew. Eschatological man. That's the title of the third part of the triptych. We want to look at this word. Because what the heck does that word mean? If you're ever playing hangman with a second grader, (laughs) this is a good one. (laughs) Or transubstantiation. That's another good one. (laughs) Okay, so eschatological. From the Greek eschaton. Eschaton meaning the divinely ordained climax of things. It's the final end of all creation. It's the last thing. It's the the bringing together the full revelation of where this all is headed. It's the last thing. A better way, maybe a good way to think about it is ultimate destiny. Eschatological refers to our ultimate destiny. And the first thing that we have to say about this ultimate destiny is that it will be a bodily experience. It shouldn't be a surprise given everything we've said already, but it will be a bodily our experience. Our bodies, they will be different in the eschaton, in glory, in heaven, because they will be resurrected and glorified, right? St. Paul, this is from 1 Corinthians. This isn't in your study guide, so if you want to write this down, 1 Corinthians 15, I think starting at verse 42, I think, somewhere in there. The body is sown corruptible. It, it the body, is raised incorruptible. Just pause there. What does the word corruptible mean? Able to be destroyed. What does incorruptible mean? Unable to be destroyed. Unable to be affected. Like it, you get the idea. It's sown corruptible. It is raised incorruptible. It is sown dishonorable. It is raised glorious. It is sown weak. It is raised powerful. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual one. Look at the bottom of uh, page 18 there in your, in your workbook. Oh, I need this microphone. The resurrection, according to Christ's words reported by the synoptics, means not only the recovery of bodiliness and the reestablishment of human life in its integrity through the union of body and soul, but also a wholly new state of human life itself. Let's just try and take this quote on for size. Did you see? Okay, let's just look. Not only the recovery of body... We're talking about the recovery. We believe that your body will be recovered. Huh? Again, what did we say about what we know about dead people? They tend to stay. Yeah, they tend to do that, right? Decomposing things tend to stay decomposed. Not only the recovery of bodiliness and the reestablishment of human life in its integrity, which integrity? The in- integration of body and soul, right? When the, at the moment of death, death was unnatural. It's not what God intended. Right? It is not natural for the body and soul to disintegrate. That's not what God intended for us. Corpses and disembodied souls are not what God intended for the human person. We will be reintegrated through the union of body and soul, but also, what? But also, what? 
a wholly new state of human life itself. A wholly new state of human life itself. Something new is being given. Like, you can't comprehend this. N.T. Wright, who's this great Anglican uh, scripture scholar, he puts it this way, and I think it's just a really brilliant and succinct way to say it. There's, There's life after death, and then there's life after life after death. All of a sudden, you're all like, what? <laughs> I just thought there was life after death. Life after death. Okay. Our bodies and souls at death separate. That's not what God intended. Thomas Aquinas has this whole treatise on what, what is God doing with these souls now? He's sustaining them. He's supporting them. He's holding them in being through a unique and singular grace. Because the human soul was meant to be integrated with a human body. For me to be me, it really helps for me to have my body. (laughs) Right? Like those Disney movies where like Freaky Friday where this person switches bodies. Like that's really bad philosophy and really bad theology and really bad. It's just, it makes it confusing, right? For me to be me, I have to be in my body. I have to be this body. Thomas Aquinas says that souls separated from their bodies after death are held in this sort of singular suspended grace until the resurrection of the body when we are reunited with our glorified bodies. There's life after death, and there's life after life after death, which will be a bodily experience. A bodily experience. The idea of splitting, I I mentioned this in my talk, my first talk, the idea of splitting the, the spiritual from the physical, saying that when we... This is how most Christians... This is most Christians' view of, of eschatology, of the afterlife. That when I die, my body goes down to earth so my soul finally can escape its mortal shell and float in freedom in the glory of a disembodied heaven. That's not Christianity. That's not Catholicism. That's Platonism. That's Gnosticism. It's certainly not orthodoxy, right? It's not what we believe. But yet that's how many of us, that's how our imaginations are formed. That's, that's, not, that's not the truth. We don't die and become angels. That's also uh, a strangely prevalent thing that a lot of people believe. That's like saying we die and become giraffes. Because <laughs> angels and human beings are different species, right? They're different species. Angels never had bodies. <laughs> they never had bodies. Um, but the heavenly experience will be one of a, an embodiment. There's a funny story that uh, Pope John the Twenty Third, Pope Saint John the Twenty Third, when they were renovating the papal apartments, there was, uh, I mean, all these architects were putting in bids to design the place. They finally had the person that was going to do it, and they presented the Holy Father with the plans um, for the renovations for the papal apartments. And the Holy Father looked over all the plans, all the designs and drawings, and the architect is standing there, very like. Like, hey, Pope, you know? Pope gets his pen and he writes just three words on the corner of the one document. And it was in Latin, of course, you know? Because it was the Vatican, it was the Pope. He rolls them up, gives them back to him, and he gets escorted out. And, and the guy's like, what? he like opens it up and he's like, what? What, did he, what did he write? And he sees down in the corner, it just says in Latin, non sumum angeli. He's like, what the heck is that? And so he finds the next you know, person next to him, a bishop. He's like, what does this mean? It says, we are not angels. He comes back to the Holy Father. He's like, I'm so sorry. I probably should understand, but I don't understand. What does that mean? He goes, you forgot to put in bathrooms. (laughs) (laughs) 
he forgot to put in bathrooms. Even the Holy Father has to go number two, okay? So we have a bodily experience in this life. Heaven will be a bodily experience. It will be a bodily experience. Look at the quote on the bottom of page 19. Quote one on the bottom of page 19. It is obvious that we are not dealing here with a transformation of man's nature into an angelic, that is purely spiritual nature. If that were the case, it would be meaningless to speak about the resurrection. We don't become angels. We don't become angels. Bodiliness will be part of the heavenly reality, and it will also be part of the hellish reality. That's a little footnote. We're not going to talk about that, but that is also true. It would also be true. Look at the quote, on the bo- quote two on the bottom of page 20. This will be a completely new experience. This will be a completely new experience. And yet, at the same time, it will not be alienated in any way from the experience man shared from the beginning. When he says from the beginning, what is he referencing? Genesis, right? Our, our, our origin, right? The experience we had from the beginning. Not from that which, in the historical dimension of his existence, the man of the future world will find in this new experience of his own body the fulfillment of what he carried in himself perennially and historically. Let me break this down. Our humanity does not get deleted in heaven. It gets completed. The things that God built into us, the the love and the relationships that began and formed in this life, they don't get deleted. They get completed. They get taken to their fullest expression in glory. The signs of love and friendship and connection, like all that is good and true and beautiful in this life, all the little crumbs that we experience, all those little moments that I'm talking about, those little pause moments, that is brought to its fullest expression. It's brought to fulfillment in glory. Our humanity doesn't get deleted. It gets completed, which is really good news. It's really, it's really good news. Is this good news? It's really good news. It's unbelievably good news. Okay, so as Jen mentioned, just as John Paul II's reflections on our origins and on our history, they spring from, from Christ's own, his own words in the gospel, right, where he says, in the beginning, they neither, um, there was no divorce, but it was because of hardness of your heart, right? All of that, right? Christ's reflections on our destiny, they also spring from Christ's words, okay? So in Matthew's gospel, he's having this conversation with the Sadducees, right? So there was different groups of Judaism at the time. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, these different groups, and they believed different things. The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism that rejected the, uh, well, they only accepted the first five books of Moses. They only accepted the first uh, five books, the Torah. And in the first five books, there's no mention really of angels or the afterlife. So they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is why they were sad, you see, okay? (laughs) That's how you can do it. That's how you remember that. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they tried to entrap Jesus uh, with what they think is an impossible like theological situation, right? They have this woman who they say, she marries this man and then he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and down, 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 down through the line and then they all die and they all go to heaven. Who's she married to in heaven? And Jesus is like, you idiots. (laughs) Now he says, 
you've misunderstood because in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. I meant to put the scripture reference there instead of just Jesus. (laughs) But it's from the gospel. (laughs) Jesus said this. (laughs) It's not wrong. Okay. Okay, so at first, it can seem here that Christ's words... It can seem that they're undermining everything that we've said up to this point about the greatness and beauty and glory of marriage, right? Is he just saying, like, forget your spouse, marriage is stupid, in heaven, they don't need marriage, right? I just kind of turned to Donald Trump there a little bit. (laughs) It's stupid, you don't need it, it's marriage, all right. (laughs) What does that mean? That just comes out. (laughs) Okay, lock it in, here we go. It can seem that way, but quite to the contrary, Jesus' words here in the gospel they are pointing to the crowning glory, really, of everything that we've said. They're pointing to the crowning glory of everything we've said. How is that the case? Because marriage, marriage existed from the beginning, Christ says, to point us to the ultimate marriage. Marriage exists in the beginning to point to the ultimate marriage. The Bible is bookended by two marriages. The bookends of the Bible, Genesis, you've got the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden, In the beginning, you skip ahead to the end, you've got the marriage of Christ the Lamb in union with the church, his bride and glory. The bookends of the Bible are marriage. And the point of the marriage in the beginning is to point to the marriage in the end. So the earthly, the temporal sign of marriage between man and woman was meant, it was designed by God to foreshadow the heavenly fulfillment. The heavenly fulfillment. It's like, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. The first, the first human words in Scripture, we heard Tommy say them, the first human words in Scripture are the man gazing upon the newly fashioned body of his naked bride, the first woman who's ever been. He's like, this one at last, bone of my bone. By the way, right, up to that point, Adam is like a caveman. He's just like dog, giraffe, penguin, right? He's just meh, frog, right? But then the bride shows up, the woman shows up, and he suddenly becomes Bill Shakespeare. He's like, this one at last, right? Get my quill. His bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? The woman makes the man a poet. The woman makes the man a poet. The Bible begins with the marriage. The Bible ends with the marriage. In heaven, the sign of marriage gives way to the thing signified. The sign gives way to the thing signified. You don't need the sign when you're at the place where the thing is in itself, right? Like, I think about my family. We used to drive down to Hilton Head for vacation in the summers. And there'd be signs along the way to Hilton Head, right? You'd see the sign, you know, 100 miles of Hilton Head Island, 50 miles of Hilton Head. Like, you didn't get out of the car and be like, the sign, we're here. You hug the sign, you get your, you know, water wings out. Like, (laughs) get back in the car, right? You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. In heaven, the sign gives way to the thing signified. There are no more signs that point you to a destination when you're at the destination, which means this, that there are no sacraments in heaven. There's no Eucharist in heaven. Why would there be no Eucharist in heaven? Because you're with Jesus. (laughs) Because you're there. You're there. In the book of Revelation, I love this little detail. John is given a vision of heaven, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And he has this little comment. 
He says, I did not see a temple in the city. That would have been wild for a first century Jew to say or to hear. What do you mean there's no temple? The temple is the meeting place of God. The temple is where God comes to earth and where we go up to God. Why is there no temple in heaven? Because it's all a temple. All is the dwelling place of God. So marriage is a sign. In other words, right? Marriage is as great and as holy and as wonderful and divinely ordained as it is by God. It is not, it is not, it is not, it is not the be all and end all, which is really good news for those of you who are married and those who aren't married. Right? Some of you are like, oh yeah, thank God, that's true. It's only, it was only ever meant to be like a little appetizer, a little foretaste, like a crumb from the banquet table. It's meant to be a thing that orients you to the heavenly marriage. I've often said this, that um, back to the idea of doing a lot of funerals, I, I've, often real, I've often thought and remarked that at funerals, that um, funerals are a lot more about life and weddings are actually a lot more about death. It's like the couple, they come to the church on the day of their wedding to stand in front of an altar, a place of sacrifice where things go to die, right? And behind them, they've got the crucifix up on the wall. And they're saying to each other, I'm laying my life down for you. And through their vows, what they're essentially saying to each other is, I promise to be the one who will most get you ready to die. I promise to be the one who, in this life, will be the closest approximation to God's love for you. Like, I promise to be the one who will dance this dance of love into glory with you. Like, the church fathers, they, they had this beautiful word to describe what the Trinity is doing. They said the persons of the Trinity are caught up in this endless dance. Perichoresis was the word they used. This endless dance, this giving and receiving. And through their vows, the couple are entering into the dance. And at the beginning, they look like, think back when you were first married, they look like awkward seventh graders at their first dance, right? Clunky and like, like we're, we're doing this, aren't we, right? Yeah? You're not, you're not you're, we're moving in, right? We're doing this. <laughs> and it's tough to learn the dance. There's... A lot of dying that has to happen and forgiveness and mercy and, and someone's leading when someone else should be leading and someone's going this way when someone's going, wanting to go this way. And, and sometimes the dance feels like it's pausing, but then you resume it and you're just, you're finding your way through it. So that by the end of life, when one of you is closing your eyes on the world, what you're, what you're essentially doing is handing them off to the Lord. And the dance continues. The dance never stops. It's an icon. It's pointing to the reality. So the question would be, though, like, why forego the icon? Why give up the icon? Because the icon's amazing. The icon is stunning. It's absolutely breathtaking. Marriage is breathtakingly beautiful. It's the sacrament of divine mercy. It's where you get to experience over and over again the awe-filled wonder that this, there's this person who finds me lovable. 
after all of this, that after all that I've done and all that I've said and all the ways that I've failed and all the ways I've screwed up and all the ways that I've pissed you off and forgotten to do this and you still love me. Like, that's an incredible thing. Who are, who are these people that would give up the sign in order to live now the thing signified? Well, they're called celibates. <laughs> in Scripture, Jesus refers to them, me, us, as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Look at the quote at the top of page 21. Jesus says, not all can understand it. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> but only those to whom it has been granted. For there are eunuchs who have been born this way from their mother's womb. There are some who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are others who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone understand, let anyone understand this who can. So he gives three different kinds of eunuchs. There's people who, because of certain birth deformities, are unable to generate you know, new life. And then there's eunuchs who have been made that way um, by others to oftentimes in the ancient world, you know, for service in the palace, those who were closest to the queen were castrated. Their generative powers were eliminated so that they were not a threat in any way. So they were made eunuchs for the sake of some other royal service. But then he says there are this other category, which didn't exist before he said this. Eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Look at the first bullet point there. A eunuch for the kingdom is someone who freely forgoes sexual relations in order to direct all of his or her energies. What kind of energies? Sexual energies. To devote all of his or her own sexual energies, the energies of a man, the energies of a woman, to what? to the union that alone can satisfy the ultimate reality of the marriage of the Lamb. So this is very important. Celibacy, despite what a lot of people in the culture think, it is not a repression of sexuality. It's also not the reason why we've had so much sinfulness in the hierarchy. It's not because we're sexually repressed. It's people who don't understand what their sexuality is that's the reason we've had so much pain in that. Celibacy, it's not a repression of sexuality. It's actually a living out of the fullest meaning of our embodied humanity. Like, like, what are we here to do? What are we here to do? We're here to learn how to enter into God's own, I'll use the Greek word, God's own agape. Right? There's four words for love. Agape, storge, philia, and eros. Agape is that self-emptying, self-surrendering, pouring it out kind of love. That's what this whole life is. It's a school of love. And all the annoying people that God puts in your path, including your spouse, including your kids, it's all the problem. The problem with us is that there's too much of us in us. Right? The reason why God called you to marriage, for those of you who are called to, mar to be married, it's not because you're so great and impressive. <laughs> I said this to Michael and Mary Beth at their wedding. I said, he called you to this not because you're so virtuous and holy. He called you to this because you are still sinners. And you're not yet saints. You're not yet ready. You, your heart is not yet ready to withstand the glory of heaven. Like if heaven is, put it this way, if heaven is an aquatic environment, we have to grow gills 
in this life. If heaven is love, being united to God, then we have to become love, which is self-gift, self-emptying, self-surrender. Celibacy is this. I'm here to be poured out. All of us are called to this. Look at the quote on the bottom of 21. The celibate person must submit the sinfulness of his own humanity to the powers that flow from the mystery of the redemption of the body, just as every other person does, whose way remains marriage. What is different is only the kind of responsibility for the chosen good, just as the kind of good chosen is different. What does he mean by this? John Paul II had this... this, um, Well, people would say to him that he was putting in front of people too lofty, too high of a goal, calling people to this, especially in the realm of, um, in the controversy or the the conversation over contraception. Like, this is too high of a demand. You can't expect modern men and women to be able to do this. He would say, what man are we talking about? Man under the dominion of sin or man redeemed by Christ? And he would thunder at people. He would slam his fist. He said, Do not drain the cross of its power to redeem you. Like, there is real power. What he's saying is, like, like as a man, going back to my days in the seminary, all of those powers and energies, I mean, millions of years of evolution are telling the body of an 18-year-old boy, get somebody pregnant. (laughs) That's what, that's the deep brain is, like, screaming, right? So what do you do with that? You don't repress it. You order it. You order it. How? Through sacrifice, through prayer. You order it towards what? Towards the good of the beloved. Right? All of the sexual energies that that get isolated in the genitals of a husband, right? I'm giving myself to my bride. That sexual energy, that power becomes thematized, it becomes generalized through the whole body and humanity of a celibate priest. Like, all of my humanity is is a gift now to the bride. To the bride. How does that happen? Through many painful purifications and submitting my humanity to the redemption of Christ Jesus. The next header in your workbook there, it reads this, the complementarity of marriage and celibacy for the kingdom. What does that mean? It means we need each other. Celibates need married people, and married people need celibates. That's what that means. You need me to remind you that your spouse isn't meant to be, cannot be, was never asked to be the be-all, end-all hope of perfection and happiness and fulfillment in your life. That's why so many marriages just crumble because they turn to each other saying, perfectly satisfy me. And you can't. It's it's never your job. It's not within your powers. The person you're sitting across from is an icon. You need me to remind you of that. That your marriage is an icon. And I need you to remind me that I'm not an ordained bachelor. I'm living a spousal reality. I'm living a spousal reality. I'm, I am espoused, and I am a father. I am a spiritual father. And, and in the order of, if what we believe about our faith is true, the, 
the supernatural is more powerful and efficacious than the natural, meaning that my fatherhood is the most real fatherhood. Dads, your fatherhood is an icon of mine. Because you generate natural life, but through my humanity, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I generate eternal, immortal, supernatural life. You give your kids natural food that sustains their bodies. I get to give you the food, the bread of angels. It's not a competition, but it's an understanding of what this is. It's a real fatherhood. And it took me a long time to grasp that. And I want to tell you a little bit of that story of how that came about in my heart. Because priests don't grow on trees. <laughs> Recognize these guys? That's Father Pat Anderson, Father Terry Gratchen, myself, and Father Ryan Mann, circa 2008. This is, uh, we used to hold this event at the seminary called the John Paul II Night of the Arts. Look at that hair. Heck yeah. It should be. It should be. So I entered the seminary, as Jen said, after one year at the University of Dayton. I began wrestling with discernment as a junior in high school. And because, as you just said, Maria, seminarians grow on trees here in Hudson, apparently. And it was just natural for, uh, you know, for people in this parish to start asking a young man who was pretty invested in his faith, have you ever thought about seminary? Because we had lots of guys going. When Father Ed was pastor here, I think in his, whatever his 20-year tenure, whatever it was, there were, I think, in the ballpark of 26 men who entered seminary. All of them didn't obviously become priests, but I think 26 guys entered, which was wild. So I went to Dayton, fall of, I went to Dayton the fall of 2007, had a really wonderful experience, but I just knew the Lord was calling me to something else. So I entered the seminary in fall of 2008, begging, hoping, thinking that the Lord would just get this year out of my system. I would get clarity to my questions, and I would be able to move on with peace. Go find me some Catholic honey and make some babies. That was my <laughs> hope. Anyway, I'm sure that's written in a journal somewhere. <laughs> so my time in seminary, my time at Borromeo, which is the undergrad, it was, a, it was an awesome experience. I, I came and I really thought, I, what I saw was, I, here are men who are, who are pursuing the same goods that I am. Like, these are all men who are in love with the Lord like I am. We're all trying to grow in virtue, trying to grow in holiness. Like, we're all in the same boat, and we're all seasick together, and it's awesome. It's just awesome. It was a good time, and I loved philosophy, and I loved what I was studying. But I really hadn't, I hadn't begun wrestling with the implications of what it meant to be in the seminary yet. You know, like, if you stay, you're going to be a priest, kind of a thing. <laughs> when did that start? Well, that started in first theology. The seminary went to the Right to Life March, uh, and... It was my first time actually going to the Right to Life March. And part of our trip there, we did this visit to uh, the Sisters of Life, did this whole exhibit where you were walking through this exhibit hall and there were big pictures like this with different people's faces on them. It was a walking audio tour. And as you walked through, you listened to people tell their various stories. As we're walking through, I stop in front of this one image of this one young man and he's telling the story that uh, back when he was in college, he, him, him and his high school sweetheart, she tells him out of the blue one day, hey, I just took a pregnancy test, and, and it's positive. And he's, as he's telling a story, he's saying, and I reacted horribly. I, I, 
I basically cut her out. I didn't respond to any texts or phone calls for about two weeks. He said, I was really obviously wrestling with that. So I went to the campus chapel and I just was praying, asking God, I don't know what to do. This is, this is not part of my plan. And um, he said, this powerful grace came over me where I felt like it's going to be okay. Like you're going you're gonna to be a dad. So he said, I called her right away. I apologized profusely. I think we can do this. I'll figure it out. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I had, I had an abortion. I, I don't know who this guy is. I, maybe I'll meet him in heaven. I don't know. But this man's story, it like kicked a door down in my heart that was like, I didn't even know it was there. It was like a, this SWAT team just entered and it, was, it woke up in me this unbelievable desire to be a dad. And I came back to the seminary and it was like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, this is not where you go if you want to be a dad. And I remember thinking, like, like everything felt different. Like, the whole place smelled different. All the, every doorknob looked different. I'm like, what am I doing here? It was like I was on this conveyor belt. All of a sudden, I realized, oh, my gosh, at the end of this thing, they're just stamping out celibate priests. They're not, like, that's all it is. And I wanted to hop off the conveyor belt, but I didn't feel called to. I didn't feel like Jesus was saying, get off, go. And so I, I stayed, and it, like, this ache just began to settle in my heart. And then fast forward to that summer, my, my, one of my uh, high school best friends, Bob Grisa, and his wife, Ellie, they were high school sweethearts, they got married. And I got to be one of the groomsmen in the wedding. It's the only ever wedding I ever got to be in. And uh, this was their first dance song, Dancing in the Minefields by Andrew Peterson. Bob loves when I tell this story. He's my parishioner now, so I tell the story all the time. <laughs> So Ellie, you can see, she's this little thing, right? Bob was a big football player guy. And we came time to their first dance. I'm going to pause that so you can hear me. We come time to their first dance, and she, she takes Bob by the hand, and she leads him out on the center of the dance floor. That song starts, and he's just, like, losing it. And, uh, and I'm sitting out, like, with everybody else, standing on the edge of the, the, the dance floor, and she's looking up in his eyes, and she's just like wiping the tears from beneath his eyes. And it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And again, it was one of those moments where a door got kicked down in my heart where I'm just like, I will never have that. I will never have anyone look at me like that. And it's this, I want to be espoused. I want to be espoused. They've got a bunch of kids now. I told Bob uh, before their wedding, I said, if I become a priest, you have to have all the kids that I would have had. <laughs> and I told him, I said, and I think I would have been pretty fertile. I'm just saying. <laughs> so they're working on it. But they've got Isaiah. They've got Matthias. They've got Xavier, my godson. <laughs> Power Rangers. I love, there he yeah, that was his birthday. I love this next picture. So Bob's got this full sleeve of tattoos, and Zavi, he wanted uh, to be just like his dad. I got number four, too, Fulton. Great kid. I love him to death. So I was sitting with this ache. 
I want to be a dad. I want to be espoused. And I was looking around at the guys at the seminary, the priests at the seminary, and none of them looked like, none of them looked like they were husbands or fathers. Like none of them looked like, they, they looked like professors. They looked like professionals. They didn't look like men whose lives were totally marked by love. And I just didn't, I couldn't understand how priesthood was ever going to satisfy this desire, these desires. I went, I went with a friend of mine to the University of Steubenville for one of their festivals of praise one, um, one weekend, a Eucharistic fop, where they bring the Blessed Sacrament out and there's, you know, beautiful praise and worship. And I swear to God, it was like young dad's night that night. <laughs> there were dads with babies everywhere. There was like dads on babies on hips, babies on shoulders. Guys were curling dads, spin, spinning babies over their heads. It was just babies everywhere with these, all these young dads. And I, I remember sitting in the back of the field house, like looking up the very long aisle at the Blessed Sacrament in the front of the church in the field house, and just saying to Jesus, like, look how far away you are. How will you ever be able to satisfy this heart of mine? Because it feels like it's just going to be crumbs and drops. Again, if you want me to do it, I'll do it, but I don't understand. And I just sat with that for a long, long time. I was back at the seminary one night, and uh, we were having a holy hour, and I opened that part of my heart up again to the Lord, and I just was saying, I, I don't understand. And into that, the Lord just spoke words to me. And I wrote them down as fast as I could in my journal. And uh, just recently, the guy who does media for us at my parish, he turned it into, I rec recorded myself reading it and turned it into this, uh, this beautiful video. But this is what the Lord said to me as I just sat with this longing to be a spouse and to be a dad. This is what he said. of Jesus Christ. You will never have the hand of a loving spouse to clasp in yours, but daily your simple fingers will tenderly grip the humility of God veiled by bread. You will never abruptly rise to soothe the cries of a wailing infant, nor stand athwart to monsters beneath the bed. But often enough, you will go whenever summoned to the bedside of the dying to comfort and anoint perspiring foreheads, chasing away real monsters. You will never comfort a sick third grader home from school with the flu, but you will don your stole to console and absolve countless sin-sick children who long to be healed. You will never cherish a little princess who will steal your heart and wrap you around her little finger. But you will introduce countless souls to the Prince of Peace who sacrificed all for them. You will never have to stay up late, worried, sick about the kids. But you will always be searching the horizon, poised to run out and meet the prodigals who have wandered from home. You will never read bedtime stories. Nightly, you will intercede on behalf of your 
your children, praying for their protection and peace. You will never watch your bride walk down the aisle with tears in her eyes for you, but you will stand at the foot of the altar as Christ's bride approaches to consummate the Holy Communion. You will never grow old with the one you love, but the one you love will make you ever new. My God, what a life. And it is yours, O priest of Jesus Christ. So on May 21st, 2016, my five classmates, we were nose down on the marble at St. John the Evangelist Cathedral. And it was one of the greatest days of my life. I love being a priest. Like when Jesus says, like, whoever gives these things up for my sake in this life will receive a hundredfold, like he really, really means that. Like he really means it. And like a priest is not someone who does certain things. A priest is someone who is a certain thing, namely, namely, a spouse and a father, that Jesus calls men away from the baptized, from the priests of the baptized, to give them what is most precious to him, which is his bride, and to serve and to feed and to protect and guide his children. Like This is why priesthood is reserved to men. It's why it's reserved to men, because Christ made us men and women different, right? And he instituted motherhood and fatherhood to reflect different dimensions of who he is. A priest participates in the eternal spiritual fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God. That's why a man studies to be a priest in the seminary so he can learn how to inseminate the heart of the bride with divine life. That's why he goes there, to learn how to give divine life. And like when people ask, why can't women be priests? I, I used to be able to say intelligibly, why can't women be daddies? That response doesn't work anymore. But their question reveals to me that, a, that that person doesn't know what a priest is. They're thinking in terms of function, not identity. Like by instituting the hierarchical priesthood, or by instituting the hierarchical church, Christ did not create a system of power. He, he instituted the priesthood to remind the faithful that your primary mission is always to, is one of receptivity. The Marian dimension of the church, the receptivity, let it be done to me, came before the Petrine dimension, the giving, the hierarchy. I want to end with a few little thoughts here. People, people always want to know what's the best part of priesthood, what's the hardest part of priesthood, what's the most surprising part of priesthood. I want to answer all those questions. I would say the best is this, that it's seeing people get it. Seeing the Lord use me to fill someone's heart with divine life, to, to impregnate the heart of the bride with the life of God. Like when, when, like for a person of my parish, when like this is what their heart looks like. <laughs> Christians are supposed to look like pregnant people. I don't mean like big and, you know, with a big belly. What I mean... <laughs> When you see a pregnant person, what you know, if not consciously, but intuitively, is that this person has encountered another person on a deeply vulnerable and intimate way. The Christians are supposed to look like people who have met the Lord in a deeply intimate and vulnerable way, and that Lord has, has generated in them a whole new kind of life. 
And when the Lord uses the priest to do that in other people, it is un, it's unbelievable. The hardest part, the hardest part is this. You know how that story goes that kids finding the starfish, throwing them back in the sea, and it's like, what are you doing, kid? You can't get all the starfish. What difference is it going to make? He throws the one in. It made a difference to that one. Right? The hardest part is, is being faced with my poverty and the, the never being enough, never being able to fix situations, being asked to enter into the hurricane of people's pain and chaos all you are being asked to do is to make good on Jesus' promise that I will be there. Like Jesus said, I will be there. And you show up when this family's 16-year-old daughter got run over by a car and killed in front of her dad, and you show up to sit with the family, and there are no words in any language for what you can say. All you're just asked to do is just be a witness to the resurrection in the midst of that. Or when you like, when like my 35 year old humanity feels like the five loaves and two fish and there's a starving mass of 5,000 people who are desperate to be fed and you're like, this is all I am. This is all I am. I think the most surprising part of priesthood is this is what I call the splashback grace. That like, in particular in confession, the the um, like I always knew in the seminary that you, that I that to go to to be a priest to be in confession you're going to be used in powerful ways to bless people. But you, no one ever tells you, no one prepares you for like the unbelievable things that you get to experience in that sacrament that like are for you and you alone because you don't get to tell anybody. It's like the Lord is like, I have reserved this, this, this thing that you wish that you could shout from the rooftops. It's just for you. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. At the center of the mass, at the center of our faith, is Jesus saying, this is my body given for you. It's his self-offering. This is my body given for you, right? When a man and woman come to the altar on the day of their wedding, that's what they're saying. They come to say Christ's words, and, and over and over again, you say those words in toil and pregnancy and breastfeeding and coaching and bandaging boo-boos and carrying out luggage through the airport like a pack mule, like through a million billion ways, this is my body given for you, and you dance that dance of love all the way to the end. And the priest, in the same way, this is my body given for you. In about a billion ways that you as the faithful can never know, this being the only real obvious one. This is my body given for you. The priest who at his ordination is told by the bishop to conform your life to the mystery of the Lord's cross, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the only way to have life, to give it. It's the only way to have it, to lay your life down, to give it away. Whether you're consecrated religious or you're married, you know, or single, the only way to have life is to give it away. It's the paradox of it all. Every vocation is like a road that juts out from one side of the cross, right? There's four faces to the cross. All our vocations bring us to the same place. Pour it out. Be a gift. Let's end with this. Not this, but this. <laughs>